electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Indeed it does, Scott. Thanks very much. Uh, Tyler Matheson here, and here's what's ahead uh, for this hour. It used to be the reopening trade or the stay-at-home trade, but these days both are getting love. We'll look at where you should put your money right now. Plus, Americans flock to the great outdoors amid the pandemic, and it looks like that trend isn't going anywhere in 2021. We've got the names to buy in what we're calling the fresh air trade. And from Jurassic World to Godzilla versus Kong to Mamma Mia, oh, Mamma Mia, we will speak with the producer behind all of these films about the success of this weekend's big release and the return of Hollywood. But we begin with today's market and Dom Chu, who has the numbers, Mr. Chu. And a flower for you, Tyler Matheson. I'm going to give it to you right now because you gave me a plant the last time. I'm going to stay as socially distant as I can there. Thank you. Hand that off to you. Thank you very much, Tyler. Beautiful thing. But... Tyler mentioned before that whole idea that things are going higher. Well, they are, generally speaking today, a more muted market session. Marginal uh, losses for the Dow Industrials. The S&P 500 did hit a record high today, so we'll put a star there next to its name. But at the highs, we were up about nine points and down eight handles at the lows. So you can see a fairly tight trading range today. The Nasdaq outperforming up about one-third of one percent. So Tyler mentioned things that are going higher. It used to be either or. These days, the recovery stocks are doing very well today. Some positive commentary and some plans coming out of companies like Norwegian Cruise Lines, also Southwest Airlines, Hilton, and then BP on the oil and gas side of things. You can see there, generally speaking, some strong moves to the upside for what we'll call the reopening trade. But it's not just the reopening trade that's working right now. Tyler also mentioned this. Look at the defensive stay-at-home type names. Peloton. Uh, analyst upgrade. We'll talk about that later on in the show. Wayfair, online retail up 6%. Zoom video up 2.5%. And Chewy, at-home dog food deliveries. That company is up about 2.5% as well. So, yes, if you're a bull out there, you're basically making money. Just long stocks. It's why, Tyler, a few folks are concerned when there's this much positivity, generally speaking, across all parts of the market. It does raise some questions about how sustainable things could become. So, yes, watch that market narrative and see if that plays out in the next couple of weeks. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Uh, So can this trend of practically everything uh, working continue? Joining us now, Jason Brady, CEO of Thornburg Investment uh, Management, and Chris Chris Grisanti, Chief Equity Strategist at MAI Capital. Uh, Welcome to you both, uh, gentlemen. So, Jason, let me begin with you. Is this a a market where it is safe to sort of throw money at everything or not? Well, throwing money at everything certainly has worked. uh, And definitely it's hard to have been long and wrong. Uh, At Thornburg, what we're looking at is really the progression of earnings at this point. So 2020 was the progression of, of PEs, right, of multiples. And now it's what you're seeing today, and, and, and what uh, Dom noted was companies that are doing well are ones with fundamental evolution that's good. And that can be from the stay-at-home to the, to the reopening trade. When we're looking at the market, it's really about the fundamentals of those stocks underpinned by a very accommodative Fed. Chris, has the easy money been made in certain sectors? And if so, which? I think so. Uh, Tyler, I think so. It's nice to be with you again. Uh, I, I think that just like 
uh, last year when the stay-at-home digital stocks did great for the first couple of months. And then from June on, they kind of underperformed the market. I think the same thing is going to happen now. I think you're going to see this opening up trade, the financials, the energy. I think the easy money has been made. I don't, I don't think those crash, but I think it's much more of a stock picker's market now. How about you, Jason? Do you think that the easy money has been made in some of those names that did so well uh, or, or since that rotation into the, into the more cyclical names? I actually think that the going here is going to get a lot tougher. So what we have now is a lot of good news into a lot of names, right? So we expect the Fed to be accommodated forever. We expect uh, earnings to progress. I think right now, as, as, as the other gentleman said, it really is more of a stock picker's market. Um, the tailwinds that we've seen from reopening are well known. Uh, it's not that they're going to go away. In fact, they could be even stronger. But uh, right now, to me, it's going to be a, a, tough, a tough road. Let's get some names uh, to uh, throw out there, Chris. Why don't you begin? There are three that you've mentioned. One is Domino's. The other is Taiwan Semi and Farfetch uh, yeah. down so far this year. But you're looking for it to uh, turn around. Absolutely. So, so, Tyler, I call these the rotational ugly ducklings. They did great last year, but they've been left behind in the move towards the reopening trade. The difference is all three of these companies, we believe, will have terrific first quarter earnings. So at the end of the day, who's going to belly up to the bar and deliver cash earnings? And we think these three will. All three of them are down a lot. I particularly like Farfetch because it's caught up in the whole Archegos uh, scandal. And, and it's being depressed, I think, for uh, idiosyncratic reasons that have nothing to do with the terrific fundamentals of the company. So that you think that can come back and, and escape the, uh, the taint of the Archegos uh, scandal. Let's talk uh, uh, your picks, Jason. You like, uh, among others, Citigroup, uh, as well as Mercado Libre and Merck. That's right. So at Thornburg, we really believe that uh, you need to look at those fundamentals and put it in a balanced portfolio. So on one hand, a lot of investors have a lot of exposure to growth, even with some of this rotation that we've been seeing with higher rates. Uh, there still may be some underexposure to some cyclical names. So Merck, as you mentioned, is something a place where capital is treated well, greater than 3% dividend, uh, can very easily deliver uh, high single-digit growth. And Citi has really kind of been uh, the less blue chip of the big financials uh, in the United States. It's got a global business, uh, 10 times P.E. and almost 3 percent dividend yield. This is one where the dynamics of that uh, cyclical positivity can keep going given valuation. And a new CEO. Mercado Libre is on the flip side. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and a new, new CEO who's going to want to show what, sh what she's got. So, uh, gentlemen, yeah. thank you. very. We're going to leave it right there. Jason Brady, Chris Grisanti, thank you very much. See you again soon. Appreciate Thanks, your time. Tyler. Meanwhile, it is no secret that more people tried outdoor activities last year, camping, hunting, fishing. They all exploded in popularity as the pandemic drove more people to explore the great outdoors, where by definition, I guess you're socially distanced. Next guest says those trends have not shown any signs of slowing down uh, this spring, and there are names you can buy to cash in. John Kernan is the retail and consumer brands analyst at Cowan. John, welcome. Good to have you with us. Good to be here, Tyler. Thanks for having me. We've got a guy on our staff named Kernan. You knew that, right? I do know that, you, yes. You do know that. But you're no relation to him. You're no, no relation. Relations. Good. All right. Let's get on to, uh, you know, it was no surprise that people looked for outlets. And last year, it was outdoor outlets, camping, fishing, hunting. You think that's going to persist because people like it and because it is accessible and an affordable way to recreate? 
Yeah, absolutely. Broadly, it's just been an incredible three weeks of consumer spending here in 2021 since early March, one of the best periods we've seen in 25 plus years. Uh, and the installed base of consumers in a lot of these outdoor related activities has grown dramatically and that has broad implications for brands and retailers servicing those consumers, fishing, hunting, camping, massive growth. So let's look at a couple of names that you like here. Uh, one of them is Yeti. Uh, I know I have some, it's up 400% since March of 2020. I'm always a little wary of saying, boy, the, the, the easy money's been made there. This one can continue, you think? Yeah, this one will continue. This has been a great stock since the IPO in 2018. Finished 2020 with about $1.1 billion in sales. We think there's a path to $2 billion plus. This is a premium position brand. Uh, making big investments in customer acquisition, digital technology, and supply chain. This is a company that will maintain a premium valuation with big earnings power. We think, you know, pushing $4 plus in earnings in three years. It's, it's, con- price, sorry, it's containers and bags and so forth. What is it? For those who yeah, don't know. Premium position and high performance uh, products in coolers and drinkware. And consumers that are very eager to pay luxury type price points for this brand. Columbia Sportswear, Columbia Sportswear up 106 percent. Why do you prefer that one above, say, uh, I don't know, uh, pick your pick your your competitor, uh, Under Armour or um, uh, who owns? Uh, I can't think of the one that used to be VF that owns. Uh, VF and Under Armour are good ones too. I think when you look specifically at Columbia, uh, their inventory is in a very good position. Uh, their order book visibility is high. We see upside to consensus expectations into fiscal 22. $130 price targets is about 26 times fiscal 22 EPS. Consensus estimates are conservative here. Dick's Sporting Goods up nearly 700% over the past year. Uh, I go there a lot. I was there last week to buy my son some cleats for baseball. Uh, they feel to me like the only game in town because so many of the others have gone out of business. Well, they've made massive strides in omni-channel retailing. The stock hit an all-time high this morning. Their customer loyalty continues to build. We think their sales and earnings guidance is far too conservative this year. They're sitting on $1.6 billion in cash. We think next year, after some working capital normalization, they'll generate another $700 million in cash. It's going to be a massive buyback. There's going to be upside to earnings and guidance over the next yeah, they, they, they seem to have the Omnichannel is right because you can buy online, you can pre-order and go pick up, which I did last week. Uh, and they do when you walk in the store, they have a little bit of everything. They have everything from camping and outdoor goods to to cleats and and, and football gear and apparel. They do. They're well positioned with the many different consumers across a wide variety of categories. Their position with many of their vendors like Nike and others has improved. This is a stock in retail. That you want. Do, do they have a geographic expansion opportunity? Are they fully across the country yet or not? They're not as penetrated in the West Coast. Uh, I think you'll see very low single digit type unit growth overall. And they are opening some new concepts, but yep. mostly it's omnichannel, it's e-commerce and it's and it's the, the product the productivity of the existing store base that will drive us down higher. John Kernan, not to be confused with Joe Kernan. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Coming up, Inflation Nation. We're going to talk to a business owner who's dealing higher, dealing with higher cardboard prices, higher freight charges, higher lumber prices. We'll look at the impact rising costs are having on him and small business more broadly. Plus, the extortion economy. 
ransomware attacks hitting corporate America more than ever. And companies are responding in an unexpected way. We'll tell you what that way is when the exchange comes back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. 2020's e-commerce boom led to a record consumption of cardboard boxes in the U.S. Producers churned out more than 400 billion billion square feet of corrugated products, an increase from 3.4% from 2019. And now a jump in commodity costs coupled with high demand is pushing prices higher. The cost of a bale of cardboard, who knew you measured it that way, up about 10% year over year. My next guest says he's already spending 20% more on boxes compared with a year ago, and his suppliers tell him prices are going to keep climbing. We welcome now John Morgan, CEO of Green Forest Cabinetry in my home state, Chesapeake, Virginia. He's also former president of the National Kitchen and Bath Association. John, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hey, Tyler. Thanks for having me here today. So it's not just cardboard that you package your products in. I've got to think that lumber costs are hitting you hard as well. Yeah. So, you know, on the cardboard side of it, um, you know, it's been a significant increase, but we've really worked hard on our side to innovate to decrease the actual usage of cardboard. So we've been able to mitigate that somewhat. But as you mentioned, lumber, uh, logistics, um, uh, employee wages and so forth, everything is pushing our costs up significantly higher today. And I can tell you on the lumber side, wood is certainly more significant for us when it affects the product price point. But lumber is actually something that affects us downstream because lumber is being used in the actual remodel. So with lumber costs going up, drywall costs going up, it's actually limiting the consumer's ability to spend more money on my products. So at the end of the day, lumber being higher is actually reducing their ability to purchase products like cabinetry, uh, smart appliances, quartz countertops. Um, all of that plays together. So uh, let, let me, I want to come back to that, but, but let me go back to how do you mitigate the use of cardboard? Do you use a different kind of packaging, a bubble wrap, a plastic, uh, what? What do you do? Yeah. So, so it's a, it's, it's a multi-part answer. I, I would tell you the first thing we did in our company is um, we have been, we're, we're not a you know, multinational company. We have just shy of 100 employees, mm-hmm. but we have a group that we keep within our company. We call it the Wonder Team. And what they do is a group of smart folks that we kind of move from department to department to handle issues. So when we started having, seeing the cardboard prices skyrocket, we took the Wonder Team and we had them look at how we package, how we box. And we've come up with some unique ways to box where we've literally been able to reduce our cardboard usage by 14% while actually increasing the protection of our product because our product is a, a finished, a highly valuable piece of furniture. We've been able to do that. We've gone from 
um, fastening systems like wet tapes to use in strapping, which has reduced half the cost just in fastening. And we've also worked on processes that allow us to innovate and actually box faster. We've been working with one of our partners, size and how to do that. Uh, we've innovated and mm -hmm. we've cut back the number of people it takes to actually box a cabinet. So that's how we're trying to balance those costs right now. So as you were talking earlier about the ripple through effects of all kinds of input costs going up, the cost of lumber, the cost of labor. Uh, so on the job site, you sell not direct to consumers, but to, su to suppliers or, or, or wholesalers. Correct. Business to business. So. So the contractor that I hire to do the job, he's going to price the job to me, and then it gets down to the, to the, to the finishing details, the cabinetry, the, the countertop, and so forth. So is, are you seeing a shift from the highest-end product that you might manufacture to a more bargain or, or mid-price product because people are saying, well, the old, I, what I'm concerned about is the total cost of my job, so I'm going to have to economize somewhere, and it might be in cabinetry. Right, exactly. You know, a consumer budget is limited. Yes. So when they're spending um, more money elsewhere, they're going to limit in some place. It used to be in our industry, the cabinets were the first thing you selected. But today, consumers tend to spend more money on smart appliances, more money on quartz countertops. So a lot of times cabinetry is the last item in the budget they're trying to save. Um, and that's actually where our company was born five or six years ago, is understanding the consumer taste and trends were focused more on a value price point, but a high quality product. So our company, uh, you talked about our higher price products. We really focus on high quality, but at entry level price points, because that's certainly where we've seen the demand in the market go. And I know I shared some growth statistics uh, with your team. Um, you can see that from our growth uh, explosion. It's because that's where the consumers are moving. They're not spending on the luxury side of cabinetry. Right. Um, that's where they're trying to save their money. So, so let, me, let me just final question here. To what extent are you able or have you been forced to, quote, pass along these cost increases to um, your, your buyers who are, the, who are, who are contractors and, and so forth, distributors? Sure. Through, through um, increased efficiencies, we've been able to mitigate and right. meet some of that cost. Um, and we've held on as long as we can. But I would tell you, even a company like us, we're now starting to pass that along. Um, we are having price increases, just like all of our suppliers continue to have that. Um, and as you said, you know, a price increase from my supplier comes to me, goes to my dealer distributor, which goes to the contractor, which ends up and goes to the consumer. Yeah. Um, you end up with level upon level upon level. Got it. Well, continue, Doug, success to your business. Uh, and uh, we appreciate your time today, John. Great. Thank you, Tyler. From, from Chesapeake, Virginia. Great state. Great state. All right. Coming up, uh, the beauty is in the eye of the bike holder. That's what one analyst says about Peloton. We'll tell you why he thinks there's a 45% rally ahead in the stock. And don't forget, you can watch us live using the app. Don't take a nap. Use the app. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, 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 click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Stocks are mixed with the S&P setting a record high today. Let's check some of the sectors. Communication services, consumer discretionary, utilities, they are your leaders. Real estate, technology are, well, leading to the downside, so to speak. And now to Leslie Picker for a CNBC News update. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Tyler. Minneapolis police trainers have testified that Derek Chauvin received extensive training on how to de-escalate tense situations and how to properly restrain suspects. The trainer said the courses took place in 2016 and 2018. As vaccine eligibility expands nationwide, many prisoners still lack access to shots. The Associated Press says fewer than 20 percent of state and federal inmates have been vaccinated. Since the pandemic began, about three in 10 prisoners have tested positive. And it's official Major League Baseball will play its all-star game in Denver this summer. This comes after deciding to move the game out of Atlanta following the passage of Georgia's new election law. You can read more about the expected move on CNBC.com and see how Denver is already preparing for the game tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. And that's our CNBC News update for this hour. Back over to you, Tyler. Leslie, thank you very much. And uh, we will see you again in rapid fire in just a couple minutes. Uh, More than a million, 1.5 million air travelers went through TSA checkpoints yesterday, making it the 28th consecutive day of a million plus travelers. But as demand ramps up, the airline industry is facing a different kind of problem, a pilot shortage. Jeff Murray, a former commercial airline pilot and partner at Oliver Wyman, sounded the alarm right here on the exchange two weeks ago. It's a bit of a perfect storm that, you know, COVID served as the catalyst for. And it has to do with largely with early retirements. At some airlines, we've seen as much as 15 or even 20% of the pilot workforce accept an early retirement because it's an incentive-based scheme uh, that a lot of pilots accept. So when the recovery returns, it's not like you can bring those guys back. You need to find new pilots, and, and that's the challenge. And today, United Airlines announcing plans to do just that, saying it will open a new pilot training academy in the Phoenix area with the goal of training 5,000 new pilots by 2030. Southwest Airlines, meanwhile, bringing back more than 200 pilots who had taken a leave of absence as they expand their schedule this summer. Coming up, tops trading cards set to go public via, you got it, a SPAC. Could it mean the top of the SPAC boom? Plus, basketball embraces Bitcoin and Kraft can't catch up with demand. (laughs) That's all ahead. The exchange is back after this. up on a few stories that should be on your radar this day. It is time for Rapid Fire and here to break down the headlines Dom Chu, Leslie Picker, Steve Grasso, the masked man, director of institutional sales for Stuart Frankel, and he is a fast money trader. First up, <laughs> Credit Suisse is out with a bullish initiation on Peloton 
After hitting all-time highs in 2020, shares of that, st- of that company are under pressure this year. Investors unsure if the company can keep the growth up as gyms re- reopen. However, Credit Suisse sees a unique opportunity initiating the stock with an outperform and $164 price target, implying a 45% up t- upside, one source of strength, High satisfaction, low churn among Peloton's customers. The stock jumping 5% on the call, still, though, down 30% from its 52-week. I am going to stop talking here. I've given away the whole story, Dom (laughs) Chu. What do you think? So here's what I would say. I would say that those Peloton people that I know really love their bikes and are not giving them up anytime soon. That's where that positivity is coming from. Another reason for some of this bullish call could be this idea that people always talk about the the TAM, right? The TAM, total addressable market. For the most part, many investors are looking at Peloton saying, yes, look at the pandemic, look what it's done to gyms and everything else. And I would be the first to agree that people will start at some point going back to gyms because we're a social species. We like being around people, especially when it comes to working out. However, Tyler, It's the international growth opportunities that have a lot of investors I talk to more bullish about this company, because if they can do this in the U.S., if they can just do this on a fractional scale elsewhere in the world, it could be a lot of upside. So that's the reason why, Tyler, a lot of folks are liking this call about Peloton. Oh, great masked man. What say you? Well, there's one thing that you left out in that report were gross margins and gross margins are off the chart for Peloton. They're 40 percent. And they think they're heading towards 46%, Tyler. That's bullish. But to Dom's point, this is a social aspect. So if you look at Planet Fitness, that one against uh, against Peloton, Planet Fitness is up year to date. Peloton down, as you prefaced it, uh, 24 to 30%, whatever that number is, the exact number. So I think there is, I, I do like the fact that with the bike, they pay for their customer acquisition costs immediately. But I do think it's reached its peak Peloton era. Now people are getting back to the gym, moving away from the bike. And and I I think that people want weights. They want different things. I know Peloton has a way of dealing with that also. But I I think people are going to migrate. We've seen the peak in Peloton for now. All right. Leslie, do you have an opinion here? I mean, (laughs) I I am a user of the Peloton, and I'm a fan of it. It has been the only home gym equipment that I have ever stuck with. Yeah, I know. Tyler, you and I both are those Peloton people that Dom was speaking about. Uh, And I do wonder, just because the gyms reopen, um, you know, is that going to be the place that people flock to first once they start to feel more comfortable? Or is it going to be indoor dining? Is it going to be some of these other areas? Uh, And then if they do go back to the gym, do they just abandon the bike altogether? I mean, I've had it, uh, you know, in pre-pandemic times and, you know, hopefully we'll continue to have it in post-pandemic times. Um, And and I do believe that just the longer you have it, the more sticky those habits become. So it could be one of those situations where people uh, maybe use it less, uh, but maybe don't completely churn out of it. Yeah, I I hear Steve's point, and I worry about the moat that they have, both from the the, the return to gyms and the idea that other competitors can come in with a very similar product. Watch what happens. Some of those instructors already are and will become big uh, social media stars. Mm -hmm. All right, let's turn to the SPAC market. Leslie, I'm going to start with you. Uh, (laughs) Tops, best known for baseball cards, uh, and Bazooka Candy is going to go through a, go public through a blank check company. It is merging with Mudrick Capital Acquisition Corporation in a deal that values tops at $1.3 billion. You're probably wondering how a company like this one fared through the pandemic uh, with many pro sports on hold. Tops net sales, 
up 23% in 2020 to about a half a billion dollars. It's a lot of gum, a record high for the company. Recently expanded into non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, mm. capitalizing on two booms at once. Leslie. Yeah, this is a, a huge story play here. As you mentioned, they are buying a company that has really bit in. I, I don't know if I can use that pun with candy. Um, but to two major trends that we've seen in the <laughs> pandemic. NFTs recently have become popular. This company has been playing around in that space for about a year now. Uh, so even even before these conversations started happening. Also, trading cards. A lot of people, even those who weren't trading, uh, you know, in, in sports memorabilia, sports cards before the pandemic started, a lot of people with that extra free time, they turned to trading sports cards. That's been another really big story that, uh, you know, we've even covered on this network. Uh, so here you go. You have a, com- a combination of those trends. Great story. Great opportunity for a SPAC. Uh, we'll see what happens in the future, though. This is, uh, you know, Dom, one of those situations of striking while the iron's hot. SPACs, NFTs, gum, <laughs> bubblicious. It's it, it just feels like a bubble. It's a, you know what it is? It's so many letters. It's like an <laughs> alphabet soup right now between SPACs and NFTs. But what a great part about this story that 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 perhaps is is, is the reason why it fascinated me was that that Jason Mudrick is a guy who's who specializes in distressed investing, yeah. specifically when it comes to credit markets. Yet this is totally not distressed at all. In fact, it's the other end of the spectrum. I guess the, the real kind of fun part for me about this story will be in the future. If you can see that NFT craze be capitalized on by a company like Tops, it's arguably one of the reasons why Mudrick was going after a company mm-hmm. like Tops is to capitalize on NFTs. And by the way, more than a third of their sales, Tyler, to your point, come from bazooka gum, ring pops, and all the other candy. So maybe that's an <laughs> unspoken part about this Steve, story right quick now. quick thought here, other than that NFT stands for not for Tyler. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I, I think that the market really is trying to digest <laughs> cryptocurrencies. Now we have to digest a- a- NFTs. It's, it's a lot to digest, but I do think the same way that I said we reached peak Peloton, I think we've reached peak pessimism in SPACs, I think I think SPACs will make a return on the scene and will be better investments for retail uh, retail folks out there. Very interesting. All right, very interesting sort of counterintuitive thought there. Speaking of sports, the Sacramento Kings are now the first major sports franchise to offer Bitcoin as payment to players and staff. Uh, team owner Vivek Ranadive uh, making the announcement on Clubhouse, but this isn't the Kings' first foray into cryptos. In 2018, they became the first sports team to mine them. And back in 2014, the Kings began accepting Bitcoin as payment online for tickets and merchandise. If I'm a player, Steve, do I want to get paid in Bitcoin because I'm going to get taxed on the value when I'm when I'm paid? And if it gains in value and I sell, I'm going to have to pay a second tax, capital gains tax. This seems like this is really ripe for losses for the players. I think that the average person doesn't really understand uh, what the benefit is to cryptocurrencies or the reason why they even hold them. You could take that salary in dollars and buy all the Bitcoin you want. Why do you need to get paid in Bitcoin? This reminds me, Tyler, and you'll remember this, and so will the rest. Remember, remember when everyone wanted to get paid in euros? This, mm-hmm. is, it, this is sort of the, it's a pseudo example, pseudo same type of uh, analogous story. But I, I, I'm not a fan of this. I think it's ripe for disaster for the players. Uh, I understand why they did it. They want to be on the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. 
But I think it's silly for players to accept payment in Bitcoin. Yeah. Too much uh, risk, to your point. And, of course, Vivek Renadive's uh, background is in technology, Dom, which probably is one of the attractions for him here. What do you think? Quick it's thought. optionality. Basically, it's optionality. You can take it if you want. I don't think most people will. But, again, to Steve's point, every time I think of get paid in this, I think of Giselle Bunchen and Euros, and that's pretty much all I can think about. Well, yeah, part of that's worth thinking of, I guess. Uh, finally, restaurants uh, can't catch up with demand. As more Americans order takeout, restaurants, large and small, are now facing a ketchup packet shortage. Packet prices are up. Thir- Who knew this stuff? You don't get this information on those other guys. Let me tell you that. Uh, packet prices are up 13 percent since January 2020. And with more people eating at home, retail ketchup sales passed the billion-dollar mark last year. Kraft Heinz, America's largest ketchup maker, has assured both diners and restaurants, quote, we're busy doing everything we can to get more supply out, Kraft Heinz, Leslie, is up 17% this year. They're playing catch-up. Yeah, I am, I am doing my part to help this cause because I have not, nor will I <laughs> ever eat ketchup. I will not consume it. I have had a huge, averse uh, <laughs> feeling toward ketchup since I... As long as I can remember, since I was a little girl. Um, it just sounds un-American, that sounds un-American, Leslie. I that sounds so un-American. Do, I mean, I can do barbecue sauce. <laughs> the Kansas City girl loves her barbecue sauce. But ketchup is where I draw the line. Very interesting story, nonetheless. But I, I just, I fail to symp- sympathize with, you, the, with the ketchup lovers out there. Have you had therapy on this? I, I, <laughs> I, I think it's, it's those who have to share food you know, with the dinner table or whatnot, with my uh, my hatred yeah. of tomatoes and ketchup and anything tomato-based that, that yeah. really need the therapy because they're the ones who, who really feel deprived. Dom? I would just say that I, I don't know. I don't have that strong of an aversion. I do enjoy ketchup. <laughs> I do, though, to, to Leslie's point, and a hat tip to Kansas City and her roots there, I do love barbecue sauce. Stub Spicy is my one of choice. It's always in my fridge. But condiment-wise, <laughs> yes, I can totally see why people during takeout mania during the pandemic would t- would hoard all of those ketchup packets in the category of things i didn't know i needed to worry about steve yeah. the ketchup shortage would be uh, front and center the, yeah it, 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 and by the way tyler who knew that these little packets were called sachets that was the, that was the biggest thing that i took away what are from they this. called again but getting to the point of sachet sachet okay. which i didn't know that i didn't no, know that yeah so, so i didn't know that but, but on top of that, I think that people have, uh, let's make this the theme, the peak, right? We've had peak takeout. I think we're getting back to restaurants. There's no short supply of the actual bottles of ketchup. I think we're making, making much ado of, of nothing. Granted, it's up 13%. I like mayo, quite frankly, and I'm not allergic to ketchup the way Leslie is. Right, so I think that we're, <laughs> we'll, we'll get through this pretty easily. Kraft Heinz, a buy in your, in your book, Steve, or do you have an opinion on it, Kraft Heinz? Yeah, I, I, I think it's really shown us how much people enjoy ketchup. Now, I'm not sure people are just throwing it in the bag and not using it, but I think this stock reflects the performance that we've seen, reflects the way people feel about ketchup. I'll think about it. We know how Leslie feels about ketchup. <laughs> yeah, I've got that- plenty of packets hoarded <laughs> that will not be eaten right. anytime soon. All right, folks. Dom, <laughs> Leslie, Steve Grasso, hold the mayo. We appreciate your time today. And coming up, (laughs) Godzilla versus Kong has been a pandemic box office hit. $48 million in its first five days of release. And we're going to talk to the legendary entertainment CEO, Joshua Grode, about that and the future of Hollywood in a post-pandemic world. That is next.
Well, it's a big weekend for the box office. We haven't been able to say that in a long time. Warner Brothers Godzilla versus Kong bringing in the highest total gross since the beginning of the pandemic. The film banked nearly $49 million in the U.S. and close to $300 million worldwide, a lot of it over in China. This all despite only about half of U.S. theaters being open. We're joined now by our own Julia Borston, along with legendary entertainment CEO Josh Grode. Uh, and Legendary produced the film for Warner Brothers, it, which distributed it and is behind other big movies like Jurassic World, Mamma Mia, and Pacific Rim. To the legendary Julia Borston. Le legend, take it away. Thank you, Tyler. And Josh Grode, thank you so much for talking to us on the heels of these better-than-expected results, both in the U.S. and internationally. To what do you attribute this stronger-than-anticipated box office? Pent-up demand, people feel safe in movie theaters. What is it? Well, Julia, Tyler, thank you very much for having me. Um, you know, I think people really missed going out and having fun. Uh, you know, we've been, we've been cooped up for a year. We've uh, had the benefit of some terrific streaming services and some terrific content, but people now can go outside and, uh, you know, they're choosing what to do to entertain themselves. And the power of movies is, you know, kind of once again been established and the power of going to movies has been established through this uh, terrifically fun movie that has been released this past weekend. So I think it's really people want to have fun. Well, speaking of streaming services, this was an interesting weekend to test whether or not people would stay home and stream because your movie was also available on HBO Max for no additional fee for subscribers. Do you have any sense of how many people streamed it at home and what kind of impact that availability, availability at home might have had on the box office? No, great, great question. You know, we, we don't yet have the analytics on the impact on the box office. We know that this was the largest sign-up event uh, for HBO Max since the service launched, uh, you know, that we're very happy for our partner Warner Brothers in the movie. Um, you know, it's really working for them. And, and but for their partnership, we would not have released this movie uh, when we did. Uh, we're happy for the ex exhibition because they had a terrific weekend as well. Um, but, you know, the, I think a lot of the a lot of the misconception may be that if you see it on HBO Max, you're not going to see it in the theaters. And I don't really think that's a one-for-one -one trade off. When you look at the, the analytics that uh, existed during COVID and even pre-COVID, there's a group of people who just are not going to the movies who are going to see content online. Uh, there's a group of people who are a little hesitant to go back into the theaters. Uh, and so, you know, they're slowly going back. But then you have a group of people who are going to go see movies in the theaters and they're going to go see it again on HBO Max. And uh, I, while I don't have any numbers yet, I, uh, I suspect we're going to find that there are a lot of people who saw this in the theaters and saw it on HBO Max as well. So big picture, though, it was a really controversial move when Warner Brothers first announced this. Now we may have just seen in the results of this past weekend that the at-home release is not cannibalizing the theatrical box office, as you just mentioned. There's still a lot of questions, including what this kind of streaming plan means for your relationship with talent and how you negotiate and make decisions about what types of films you're going to make. How does this plan, at least for the next year, that Warner Brothers has to do these simultaneous releases impact your outlook on the industry? Well, look, in the short term, you know, we, we, we have another movie coming up due, which is, is on path to being a day-and-day -day release. And, you know, we have a great partner in Warner Brothers who recognizes the benefit they're getting from the content on HBO Max and 
they're leaning in as a, as a good partner would do, uh, you know, to make this a, a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, but I think the real interesting thing is, you know, what happens to all the downstream windows? You know, we can do a lot of analytics around the value of what these movies are before they're released. And, and pre-pandemic, you know, us and the other studios were very good at predicting a future 10-year revenue stream for movies because we knew what the windows were. We knew the value of the windows and we had a lot of data around the tie rate to theatrical performance to the value of those later windows like home entertainment and, and, uh, and pay TV. Now, you know, post pandemic, we're going to have a very different windowing system. So we're going to have the movies go into theaters for the most part for 45 days. And then when they come out of theaters, we're going to see those movies, not just in home entertainment, but we're going to see them on home entertainment. Mm-hmm. Or we're also going to see them mm-hmm. on pay TV all at the same time. Well, and so we just don't well, have so one question I have. Yeah, it's certainly untested waters. But one question is, you know, one thing's for sure is that we will have more competition. The theatrical experience will have more competition from streaming at home as more films are available and with shorter windows at home or simultaneously at home. And also we're seeing China becoming a bigger force in terms of the box office. How do those two factors play into the types of movies you see your company investing in in the future? Well, look, you, you have to you have to find movies that are going to cut through the noise, right? Uh, you have to find movies that are going to be buzzy, that are going to be you know made for the big screen and a big screen experience. You know, the Godzilla vs Kong is two huge monsters going at it. This movie was designed to be fun. Um, it's designed to be loud. It's designed to have people cheering for Team Kong, for Team Kong or Team Godzilla. And that's what we delivered. Uh, you know, our head of production, Mary Parent, is a terrific and nobody better at creating event-type movies. And, you know, Adam Lingard delivered a terrific movie. And so it got people wanting to go cheer with their friends. And, you know, I, I think we have to look at the comparison a little differently. You know, I, I don't look at the comparison of, am I going to choose to stay home and watch the movie, you know, yeah. post-COVID? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have to look at the comparison as I'm going out for a night out of entertainment. And what mm-hmm. am I going to choose for my entertainment? Am I going to choose movie, concert, mm-hmm. dinner with friends? And that that's really the unknown right now. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing's for sure, uh, Josh, that you certainly saw this past weekend that people were ready to get back into theaters. And uh, we hope that can continue. Josh Grode, CEO of Legendary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you both. Still ahead, cyber attacks have cost corporations hundreds of millions of dollars, often paid directly to the criminals behind the attacks. We will get an inside look at these massive payouts from a cyber hostage negotiator. That's next. And as we head to break, it is Financial Literacy Month. CNBC committed to sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here is NASDAQ's president and CEO, Adina Friedman. Learning how to be successful personally and professionally and leveraging the financial education that's available is a big part of what makes our economy so strong. And the financial industry has really done their part to provide a lot of educational opportunities. So we are excited to see more and more people get involved in finance, but also get involved in opening businesses and making their lives a success through finance. Ransomware attacks on corporate America have been skyrocketing, and often companies see no choice 
but to pay off the bad guys. Eamon Javers has the latest. Hi, Eamon. Yeah, hi, Tyler. They do feel like they have no choice. Take a look at this. This is a real digital ransom note that was recently sent to a company that was attacked by hackers. This is the kind of thing that you get when you've been infected. It says your network has been infected in those scary red letters there. The hacker, hackers are demanding a cryptocurrency payout. And there's even a countdown clock there warning you that you only have a limited amount of time to respond to this. So what do you do now? Ransomware like this is surging and so is demand for negotiators like Mark uh, Mark Bleicher of Arate Incident Response, he helps victim companies deal with the attack and, if necessary, pay off the crooks to get that data back. Now, the first thing that he tells us his team does is to try to secure the company's systems and then figure out if they can get things back up and running without the help of the hackers. If they can't, that means that they've got to talk to the bad guys, even though the FBI advises that companies should not be sending money to criminals. Now, once the money changes hands, companies can get the decryption keys within as little as 24 hours, we are told here. So uh, Bleicher says that hackers base their ransom demands on the internal financial documents that they've stolen or on the limits on the company's cyber insurance. They know that because they're already inside the servers. One hacker recently demanded a $70 million ransom, although Bleicher told us they didn't end up paying that much. His goal here is to get the data back and to get the price down. They just may be a 10-person law firm, for example, but that 10-person law firm may have, you know, politicians as clients, and therefore that ransom may be extremely high versus you may have a, a Fortune 50 company where the ransom is lower, and because they only got to a certain portion of their data. Now, these payments are almost always in cryptocurrency, but once that money does change hands, we're told that the hackers almost never walk out on the deal because they want the victims who are next to pay too. Now, Arate says uh, that different industry groups are paying widely divergent ransoms. Healthcare pays $140,000 on average. Finance pays $210,000. But look at this. The average ransom in the tech, engineering, telecom space is over a million dollars, Tyler. So you can tell where the value is for that data based on who's paying what. Fascinating stuff. Uh, to the extent that the companies are paying this, are they encouraging more of it quickly? Yeah. They are. They're making a market, and they know that they're making it worse for the next people down the line. But a lot of companies are simply concluding they have to do it because it's an existential threat to mm -hmm. their company. If they don't pay, they're, they're going out of business. And so they pay. Eamon, thank you very much. Eamon Javers, that does it for The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, college basketball player of the year, Luke Garza. Iowa Hawkeye will join us to discuss Baylor's win last night. And he'll also make a very special announcement you'll want to hear. Courtney Reagan will be along to join me on Power Lunch after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.